first you told us only through you could we know God and if we dared to question he wouldn't spare the rod for you we worked the soil for you we dug the moors for you we shed our blood and fought so many pointless wars now you try to tell us there's nothing we can do you say the world around us belongs fairly to the few but about six billion people no doubt will agree this world is our home not your property it's the commons our right of birth and you who would enclose the land all around the earth our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain you who've sacrificed the public good for your private gain with our sweat we built the railroads built cities on these shores but because you own the money you see that it's all yours we laid the phone lines and the pipelines and then right before our eyes you see these things are taxes paid for you now will privatize privatize the hospitals privatize the schools privatize the prisons for all those who break your rules and preparing for the day when all the wells run dry you say you own the very rain that falls down from the sky but it's the commons our right of birth and you who own the water all around the earth our future is your downfall when they cut this ball and shame you who sacrificed the public good for your private gain you claim to own the harvest with your terminator seeds you claim to own the genomes of every animal that breeds you claim to own our culture and the music that we play and with each song that we download to your coffers we must pay you'd even own my name and you'd say it's for the best maybe you'll let us on your radio and our songs can pass your test you own country you own western you say you've given us a choice you may own the airwaves, but you'll never own my voice. It's the commons, our right of birth. And you who'd own the music all around the earth. Our future is your downfall when you cut this ball and chain. You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain. It's the commons, our right of birth. And you who would own everything all around the earth. Future is your downfall when you cut this ball and shame. You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain. The opinions expressed on corporations and democracy are those of our guests and the hosts, and not necessarily of the management of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Good evening, and welcome to Corporations and Democracy for January 20th, 20th 2022. This is the program that examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with true democracy. I'm Steve Scalmanini with co-host Annie Esposito. Today's program will be in two sections. For the first half hour, we'll discuss the new Nuclear Posture Review of the United States, just published by Veterans for Peace upon the first anniversary of the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And at the bottom of the hour, we'll discuss a new uh, updated version of a book by Norman Solomon called Made Love, Got War. Just released it as a free ebook with uh, some updates and some additional uh, chapters. So for the first half hour with us to discuss the new nuclear posture review of the United States, just published by Veterans for Peace are Jerry Condon and Helen Jacquard. Jerry is a Vietnam-era veteran and past national president of Veterans for Peace. Jerry, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. 
Hi, Steve and Annie. So glad to be with you. And Helen Chicard is the program manager for the Veterans for Peace, the Peace Boat, the Golden Rule. And we'll give listeners a short update on that uh, that program uh, later in the uh, in the half hour. Um, and by the way, Jerry and Helen are a uh, couple who live nearby in Lake County. Although right now they're on a stop overnight stop on their way to uh, San Diego for some events down there. So Helen Jacquard, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Thank you very much. Great to be here again. It's really nice to hear your voice. And uh, let me ask you about this nuclear posture review. People are probably wondering what it is. Right. Well, you know, uh, the nuclear posture review has been a tradition since the Clinton administration that each incoming administration um, come reviews the U.S. nuclear posture and, you know, what the state of the weapons is and the deployments and the strategy and and uh, whether they want to build new weapons and modernize them or whether they want to revise their policy to make it a safer, saner policy. And uh, so that started with, with Clinton, and it's carried through with uh, George W. Bush, with uh, President Obama, uh, uh, and even uh, with a President Trump, and now the Biden administration is on the eve of releasing their own uh, nuclear posture review. Um, President Biden has long said that he thinks the U.S. should reduce the role of nuclear weapons in U.S. military strategy, and there were rumors that he might even adopt a policy of no first use of nuclear weapons. Uh, in this nuclear posture review, but that now seems doubtful. His his nuclear posture review is being written at the Pentagon by generals and cold warriors whose whole career has been tied to U.S. global domination and who know that when they retire, they will have fat jobs with weapons manufacturers. So there's your your uh, corporate uh, uh, corporations over democracy. So according to experts like Daniel Ellsberg and ex. Defense Secretary William Perry, the danger of a catastrophic nuclear war is greater now than ever before. And this is a threat to the survival of human civilization and to all life on Earth. So it can't be stated too strongly or too urgently. We cannot leave our very survival in the hands of the Pentagon generals and the nuclear arms industry. Uh, The people must rise up and be the adults in the room. And that's why Veterans for Peace has written our nuclear posture review. Uh, We've decided uh, not to wait for the Pentagon, but as veterans uh, who've seen uh, what war can do and who have become very strong critics of U.S. foreign policy, uh, we've decided to take this into our own hands. Um, We've written a, a, a nuclear posture review which calls on the U.S. to sign the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Uh, and that's, we're going to be talking more about that later. Helen's going to be talking about it because this is the Saturday is the first anniversary of that nuclear ban treaty going into effect. Um, the nuclear posture review also calls on the U.S. to begin good faith negotiations to eliminate all nuclear weapons. And that's actually an, uh, an obligation that the U.S. has, uh, had since 1970 when it signed the uh, treaty on the, uh, the, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 
It also calls on the U.S. to take immediate steps to reduce the risk of an accidental nuclear exchange, such as implementing a no-first-use policy and such as taking nuclear weapons off of hair-trigger alert. So our intention is we, we released this publicly yesterday. It's getting quite a bit of buzz um, in the peace and disarmament movement, but also in the, in the the media, at least the alternative media so far. Um, um, but we're going to um, be doing a lot of organizing around this in the coming weeks and months. Um, we plan to deliver the, our nuclear posture review to the president, the vice president, to every member of Congress, and even to the Pentagon. And we may take it beyond that and uh, deliver it to the doors of the weapons manufacturers and the major media who seem to... Uh, uh, be ignoring uh, this important uh, threat to uh, all of humanity. Well, you picked a great time for it because right now there's all this saber rattling going on and people are feeling pretty nervous. Uh, what were you saying that the U.S. and Russia each have 900 some weapons on, like you, the way you put it, hair trigger alert? That's a lot mm -hmm. of firepower they have ready to, all ready to go. So you beat Biden to the punch and came out with your posture review first mm -hmm. um, yeah you did uh, mention some of the things that that you're pointing to that that are quite different than what we imagine will be in the pentagon inspired report um, i notice you have it in three categories there's uh mm -hmm. immediate posture changes and then negotiations for nuclear disarmament and then um, implement which you mentioned implementation of treaty obligations Mm -hmm. Those are your three broad categories. Um, do you want to talk any more about the, the, those three things and some of the things within them that you think are the most important? Well, as I said before, we think that uh, the most important are really just to, uh, to take steps to abolish nuclear weapons altogether, and that would be signing the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, beginning uh, good faith, uh, negotiations uh, to reduce uh, or to eliminate all nuclear weapons, and then taking the steps I mentioned before, no first use um, and no no hair trigger alert, also known as launch on warning. Um, these are steps, uh, some of the more important steps. So we have a, it's quite an extensive document. I mean, it's 10 pages, uh, so it's not 80 pages, but it covers a lot of ground. It's like we have all, there's nine uh, nine countries, including the U.S., that that uh, possess nuclear weapons. Um, that is uh, the U.S. and the U.K. and the U.S.S.R. and France and India and Pakistan and North Korea and Israel and China, of course. I think maybe that I covered them all. So we cover, we, we kind of review the U.S. posture towards all those countries and, and make specific recommendations for how that can be approved, improved. In the end, we come really to the conclusion that sadly it's unlikely that the U.S. is going to take major steps towards nuclear disarmament absent a change in its overall uh, the overall U.S. foreign and military policy, which is an incredibly aggressive policy, maintaining 800 bases around the world, and right now um, challenging uh, both Russia and China to uh, two nuclear-armed states. 
uh, in their own backyards, so to speak. Um, the the con- confrontation in Ukraine is particularly disturbing, um, and especially when you see all the U.S. media just echoing the uh, propaganda of the State Department, giving them incredibly one-sided um, view of what's actually happening there, making it sound like Russia is the aggressor, uh, when in fact it's U.S. and NATO uh, militaries that are pushing themselves right up against uh, Russian borders, as if Russia has no um, right to be concerned about its own security when it's being when when ag- aggressive uh, enemies are are stationing missile batteries in neighboring countries and sending troops and now trying to uh, incorporate uh, Ukraine and into NATO. Uh, after actually facilitating a a, a coup in Ukraine uh, just several years ago, uh, so uh, this is a very dangerous situation. Until the U.S. Uh, adopts a policy of getting along well with the rest of the world, accepting the fact that it's a multipolar world that we're living in now, and uh, and the U.S. is no longer the top dog, nor should it try to be the top dog, until that kind of change in consciousness of the American people forces a change at the highest levels of government, uh, then we're probably going to continue to see this nuclear brinkmanship. Uh, but uh, it's certainly, uh, so I think it, you know, our, our conclusion in our nuclear posture review of Veterans for Peace is that uh, non-intervention and climate justice, because of course that's the other existential threat to uh, human civilization right now and the environment in general. Climate justice and non-intervention go hand in hand with nuclear disarmament, and we think we need to kind of be um, working for all of those at the same time. Mm-hmm. Let's talk for a minute about some of the defensive type forces, The uh, uh, among the points that uh, the, the report makes and calls for it to eliminate THAAD and other anti-ballistic missile systems and uh, oh, just eliminate all missile defense systems. Now that's on mm-hmm. one hand makes, you know, creates a vulnerability. On the other hand, uh, it ensures that nobody's likely to go first. So can we talk about that issue for a minute? Sure. Um, eliminating um um, could you repeat that question, well, Steve? Was, you, you mentioned THAAD. THAAD, yeah, T-H-A-A-D. I, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Excuse me, I forget the, what it stands for now, I forget the acronym. Right, is. right. But, uh, but it calls for eliminating anti-ballistic missile systems. Right, right. Well, these anti-ballistic missile systems are are talked about as missile defense systems, but in fact, they're they're like the sword and the shield. They're the shield part of the sword and shield strategy. And uh, by threatening to neutralize the response of a country, it kind of is to a first strike. So um, these, these are actually part of a first strike strategy weapon. The U.S. theoretically could decide to launch a first strike for whatever bad reason uh, against uh, Russia or another uh, nuclear armed state, and then um, try to shoot down their responding missiles with these so-called anti-ballistic defense missile systems. Um, so that is a very, very destabilizing weapon. 
and and creates the a much greater threat of a accidental uh, or miscalculation on on one side or the other that could lead to a to a, a catastrophic uh, nuclear exchange, uh, either intentionally or otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, so eliminating the anti-ballistic systems will it will ease tensions and make it easier for nuclear armed states to take the first steps towards um, eliminating or at least reducing their number of nuclear weapons. Yeah, I've always thought it was crucial for the public to know that all this modernization that's talked about, including anti-ballistic missile systems, but also modernization of the uh, alleged supposedly offensive weapons, creates additional temptation to go first. And that that is, exactly. that is frightening because some of these Pentagon types, they really think we ought to. And, you know, that's a little nutty, but that's what they yeah. think. Well, if you remember Dr. Strangelove, uh, yeah. a movie that's still <laughs> worth seeing. Uh, it's a great movie, and it, and it tells the truth that there are actually people like that <laughs> in leadership positions in the Pentagon and sometimes in the White House. So, you know, Donald Trump uh, scared a lot of people by by making remarks going to the, over to the Pentagon and saying, well, if we have nuclear weapons, why don't we use them? Why don't we use them? That's uh, right. That was only three and, or four uh, years ago. Uh, speaking of which, uh, that's another one of our, our um, suggestions or proposals is that uh, we uh, get rid of the sole authority of the president, replace the president's sole authority to launch a nuclear attack mm-hmm. uh, with a safer and more collective process, less likely to lead to, lead to a rash dis- decision. Mm-hmm. So right now the president, uh, any president, uh, uh, of course people got concerned when Trump had his finger on the button, but I uh, would uh, wouldn't really trust um, any president to have that kind of uh, authority. That sounds complicated to bring about world peace, uh, but you, Jerry, you say it's it's not that difficult. Yeah, well, it's it it, it may not be easy, but it's not impossible. Um, and I think, that especially when you look at the um, proposals for dis- disarmament, are often met with skepticism and saying, "Well, it's may- way too complicated," and you know, we're kind of locked into this uh, nuclear, this mutual. Uh, destruction mode, and uh, there's no way out of it. Well, I think there's. It's not really that that uh, difficult at all. If the U.S. and Russia have by far the vast majority of the nuclear weapons, that those two nations could take steps, and I would suggest that the U.S. should be the very first to take the step because the U.S. has a much more aggressive military policy worldwide the us if the us were to unilaterally announce for example that it was eliminating half of its nuclear weapons and asking uh, russia and other nuclear armed nations to do the same i believe that some momentum would build very quickly because because the people of the world are very alarmed and do not Want nuclear weapons, and that's uh, that's uh, evidenced by the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which uh, Helen has has been following closely and would like to speak to. That's right. We we're busy celebrating something that right now, right, Helen? What's going on? That's great. A year ago, the United Nations 
Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons came into force. Helen, are you on a, um, a speakerphone? No. Oh. I just heard you. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was muted. Oh, that was... Oh. <laughs> okay, we were hearing you through Jerry's phone then. <laughs> so, yeah, a year ago, um, the United Nations um, Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons came into force, mm-hmm. and it prohibits... Um, Countries from developing, testing, producing, acquiring, stockpiling, using, or even threatening to use nuclear weapons. This is the last of the weapons of mass destruction to become internationally illegal um, after chemical and biological weapons and landmines and cluster bombs. So it's a really important step. Um, Now, even though the nuclear armed states haven't signed this treaty yet, we're putting a lot of pressure on them. For example, over 100 banks are now not funding companies that produce nuclear weapons. So there's good campaigns out there um, to get this treaty ratified and stop the production of nuclear weapons. That was 100 banks are not funding the nations that, uh, run that by again? They're not funding the companies that produce nuclear weapons. Oh, And then you've got cities and pension funds are no longer willing to fund nuclear weapons either. Mm -hmm. So the divestment campaign is pretty powerful. Um, Another tool we have in our toolbox is the uh, campaign to get cities around the world to declare that they support the treaty. So um, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, of which Veterans for Peace is a member, has this I Can Cities appeal, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. And um, I, I was, um, I and the Golden Rule Project of Veterans for Peace were instrumental in getting the city and county of Honolulu, which is all of the island of Oahu, mm-hmm. to sign on to say, you know, sign the treaty, U.S. government, mm-hmm. and furthermore, take these other measures to stop the possibility of nuclear war. So it has been signed by 87 nations, and as it was actually ratified uh, late October 2020 and became international law a year ago today, or, or the January 22nd last year. So it's a year right. old. That's right. So happy birthday. That's great. That's right. Well, we, we're, um, we're heavily promoting it both within Veterans for Peace and the VFP Nuclear Abolition Working Group and the Golden Rule Anti-Nuclear Peace Boat, which is um, currently headed towards San Diego. They're out at sea right now. Okay, so now all we have to do is to get the, the nuclear um, powers to sign it. That's next. <laughs> yeah, and, right. Now, what, what, right. what's up in the U.S. San- obviously was felt very threatened by uh, this treaty, the, what some people call the Nuclear Ban Treaty, mm-hmm. or the TPNW. Uh, they actually organized a boycott of, in, of the 2017 United Nations uh, discussions and negotiations on this treaty, and uh, they convince the other nuclear powers, or maybe that some of the nuclear powers didn't need convincing. Those that have it think it gives them more status, gives them more power. In some cases, it gives them more defense against the threat threat from the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, So they didn't want to to let go of their weapons. um, And uh, 
the U.S. actually had a press conference out in front of the United Nations saying, we we think this is bogus. We, we're encouraging countries to boycott it. I think about 40 countries maybe actually uh, refused to participate in the discussions. But then still the overwhelming majority of countries did. And as you know, the vote was 122 to 1 in favor. Uh, so that really, in the, in the International campaign against nuclear weapons uh, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize uh, that year uh, for its efforts to uh, guide this whole thing through the, throughout the United Nations. And uh, so now uh, that it's gone into effect, it uh, it's a, it expresses the will of the large majority of the of the people of the world, and it also um, it kind of shames uh, uh, the. Uh, countries that are holding on to these abominable weapons and puts pressure, real pressure, on them uh, to reduce and eventually eliminate all nuclear weapons. So, Helen, you mentioned uh, the Golden Rule is promoting this. We only have a few minutes uh, left. Do you want to talk about your, the Veterans for Peace project, the Golden Rule, was, was actually born right here in Northern California? Well, re- reborn, I guess, up here in Humboldt. Actually, um, so Golden Rule in 1958 was finished in San Pedro um, near Los Angeles, and um, at that time, uh, people were trying to get the nuclear bomb testing stopped in the, in the Marshall Islands and elsewhere, and the Golden Rule was used. They were going to sail it into the nuclear testing zone and just get in the way of the bomb. Um it, 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 they were stopped in Honolulu, and that helped spark an international movement to through the through of the Golden Rule and to um, stop the bombing, you know, the bomb test. Well, it was um, it sank in Humboldt Bay in far northern California in 2010, and was resurrected by Veterans for Peace and put back on its anti-nuclear mission. And so I've been sailing uh, on the Golden Rule and as through and. Um, the project man and the project manager of the Golden Rule project. Mm-hmm. So we sailed all of the yeah, and coast. This is a 34 foot uh, uh, classic, uh, beautiful wooden sailing sailboat. Yeah, it's cute, even. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's nice to see you sailing around with uh, the peace insignia on one sail and veterans for peace on the other sail. It's it's, it's a quite a quite a showboat, really. So yes, it'll, indeed, it'll be in San well, Diego people, for the event this uh, c- uh, coming up this weekend. Yeah, we're going to be in San Diego for several events, including uh, Saturday evening, which is the twenty second of January, the the an- first anniversary okay. of the, the tr- nuclear ban treaty going into effect, mm-hmm. and we're going to have a a wonderful event there with uh, Veterans for Peace and several other organizations. And I would just say that uh, if people want to see our schedule in Southern California, um, and we're also going to be going down to Mexico to take our deported veterans out sailing, they can go to the website. That's VFP for Veterans for Peace, VFP Golden Rule. Dot org, And if they want to read this uh, really quite remarkable and very educational document, the Veterans for Peace Nuclear Posture Review, they can just go to the Veterans for Peace website, veteransforpeace.org. There you go. And if you want to sign up uh, to be part of the crew, you get a hold of Helen, <laughs> I guess. That's right. Got any sailors out there over on the coast. You know, they know what they're doing. Hey. 
the application form, vfbgoldenrule.org, and there's um, under how you can help, there's a free application form. You can just let us know that you're ready. Okay, okay once again, okay. vfpgoldenrule.org, and then the uh, Nuclear Posture Review is right there at veteransforpeace.org. And we're out of yeah. time. Right, and please say hello to our your next guest for us, Norman Solomon, a wonderful peace activist who knows a lot about uh, the nuclear disarmament movement and has written, written about it lately. And so um, we look forward to, to hearing him. Okay, hey. we will. Thank okay. you. Okay, thanks for being our guest, and we'll be in touch, though. Try and monitor you We surely you will. Okay. Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Jerry. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Abolish nuclear weapons. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Okay, for the second half of the program, we'll discuss the new edition of Norman Solomon's book, Made Love, Got War, being published just this week, has a free ebook. And our guest is Norman Solomon, the author, a frequent essayist at uh, Reader Supported News and now at his own site. And uh, by the way, that is one of my, both two of my favorite sites to go to for news. He's a co-founder of RootsAction.org also. Some listeners will remember him as a candidate for Congress here in our district back in 2012. And he was with us on the air about a year ago when we discussed the, uh, at that time, uh, President Biden's selections for his cabinet. So today, but we have the opportunity to look at the new free ebook edition of his book, Made Love, Got War. So Norman Solomon, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Hey, thanks a lot, Steve, and uh, hi to you and to Annie and everybody listening. Yeah, so uh, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Um, this, Pleasure. This book, uh, May Love Got War, it's a, a classic, uh, but for the children among us, do you want to tell people what the, where the title comes from? 
<laughs> well, back during the, uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, it became a very popular slogan, make love, not war. And as I was working on this sort of reflection, uh, sort of a memoir, if you will, 15 years ago, it came to me that we had hopes, and I am in the so-called baby boomer generation, we had hopes, and as is quite often in life, some hopes uh, don't turn out as well as one would hope and go in another place. And so it occurred to me that the well-worn, time-worn slogan, make love, not war, could be, in retrospect, understood to have transpired as made love, got war, because really, not only in the last 20 years has the U.S. been literally in continuous nonstop war from October 2001 to the present moment, but really when you think about uh, the Vietnam War, the invasions in the 1980s of Grenada and Panama, the Gulf War in 1991, uh, the launching of missiles on Libya under the watch of Ronald Reagan, and I've left quite a few out, um, so-called minor um, military actions, we really have lived uh, in times of war uh, for um, for many decades. Yeah, I, I think we're going to find a lot of resonance in your um, memories, quote-unquote, with what's going on now. <laughs> but yeah. one of the things yeah. that's kind of fun about your book is it, it hits everything from the 60s experience, the 70s, from Woodstock to SDS. I was curious if you would like to let us know about your FBI file. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I discovered it back when there was a more functional Freedom of Information Act. The uh, FOIA requests are still possible to make, but they've become more and more sluggish in terms of government response. The idea was that if government agencies were keeping a file on you, and of course in the J. Edgar Hoover era, there were huge quantities of files. There have been quite a bit since then with the FBI. The idea of FOIA was, hey, you get to file a request and you can find out what the government has been doing when they're snooping on you. And so I filed a request uh, back in the mid-1980s, and after a while, to my surprise, I got 14 pages back. I think that the government has subsidized, to some degree, the magic marker industry, because (laughs) as is true for so many people, when they get the files back, a lot of it is blacked out, so you are reading a sentence, and you sort of wonder what is underneath the magic marker. Mm. Um, And really, I mean, if they could spend that kind of money on me, um, then what kind of money were they spending on people who, you know, were um, having more of an impact on society, often being spied on, as Martin Luther King was, with vast quantities of pages accumulated? And then it raised the question, don't we have problems that the FBI should be trying to investigate rather than investigate people who are working for peace and social justice nonviolently? It does raise that question um, when one gets one's own um, FBI file. Yeah, I've, I've actually seen some of those. Not, I don't have one myself, or at least I've never asked for it. Um, maybe I might have one because they're hanging out in the women's movement. You know, you never know. But uh, oh yeah, no, that, that, group, that, that right? would do it. And <laughs> I should add, and it's so often the case. There's so many uh, experiences like that. A lot of what was not blacked out was simply factually incorrect. But oh well. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, uh, I, I have seen some. They're, they're comical to look at because there's, they leave in some of the conjunctions and prepositions and things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, you know, so, okay, bad grammar, bad spelling. And also, in my case, uh, I supposedly was affiliated with political organizations that I, I had never had anything to do with whatsoever. And then later on, uh, a later page said, oh, uh, we got that wrong, so we're closing that file. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's amazing. It sort of reminds me of the the facial recognition technology that's in use today. Um, yeah, and um, much more uh, gratefully, we have been promised for 20 years almost now that the drone wars are very accurate. And we know from reports that have been done by The Intercept, the heroic whistleblower Daniel Hale, who's now in prison, we know from documents that these supposedly accurate drone wars are killing most of their people, have nothing to do with those who are being targeted. Uh, you know, sometimes 80 or 90 percent of the people being killed by these drones in the so-called war on terror 80 to 90% of them have nothing to do with terrorism whatsoever. They're simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, they're often children. You make a lot of references to this kind of dissonance where there's this rhetoric of peace, but uh, underneath it, people don't really get the information of what's really going on. Yes, it's very much contemporary. And I mentioned in the afterward uh, to this ebook edition that in his first year, President Biden has said, for instance, in a speech to the United Nations General Assembly in September of last year, that the United States is no longer at war, you know, which is preposterous. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is bombing in the Middle East, mm -hmm. uh, has troops in many countries. A lot of the bombing we don't get much information about. We know that some of it's going on. And it does recall in the book 1984, War is Peace, that there's a definition of peace that is overarching about, well, we don't consider this to be at war. As a matter of fact, one thing I discovered recently was that back during the bombing of Libya under President Obama, his administration formally told Congress that the United States was not at war and that there was no need to consider the War Powers Act to be applicable, that the White House did not have to get after 90 days congressional approval because, President Obama said, the United States wasn't at war. Well, the United States every day was dropping bombs on Libya. And the way that the Obama White House explained it was, well, we're not at war because no Americans are dying. Oh, yeah. Wow. This is the, yeah, there's a lot of amazing things that you bring out like that. And uh, you did this afterward. You just mentioned it's been picked up by uh, different media outlets, progressive outlets, uh, with the title uh, Ominous History in Real Time, <laughs> where we are now in the USA. And do you want to talk a little bit about um, President Biden and his uh, military budget? Yes, uh, the afterward was completed just uh, a couple of weeks ago, and everybody listening is invited to go take a look at the afterward as well as uh, download the free ebook. And it's pretty easy to get to. You just go to the web, madelovegotwar.org. That's madelovegotwar.org, and you can download it. And one of the things that interests me very much is that having 
written books. You know, I'm 70 years old. I've written a dozen books that have been published by some very small publishers and some very huge publishers. And so much in our society, of course, is monetized. And it's about commercial efforts and entrepreneurial profit-seeking and so forth. And, you know, you write a book, you sort of enter into uh, that sort of agreement. There's a contract. You don't really own your book anymore in that sense. And for better and worse, the Made Love Got War book was published by a publisher uh, that then collapsed. And so all the rights reverted to me. So I realized, hey, I don't have to charge anything for this book. Let's mm-hmm. make it a free ebook. And I was really glad that I could connect the time span that the book covers going back to the 1950s and 60s and then sort of interweave my own like firsthand experiences and bring it up to the Biden presidency because it is a continuum. And where we are now, of course, I mean, that's true in everybody's life as an individual. Every moment is part of where we are now, our our current moment, everybody listening, you, me, everybody, we are the sum total of every moment we've lived up till now. And that's so true of history as well. The United States is very much a telescope to the current moment of everything that's happened before. And I think that's a lot of the battle going on now uh, over, for instance, so-called critical race theory and so forth. The right wing is going nuts because they can't stand the idea of real history. It's called by them revisionist history. The real word for it is history. Uh, (laughs) Slavery, uh, the genocide against Native Americans, the oppression of women. This is part of our history. And no matter how much things uh, might be swept under the rug or how much things have improved, still we don't shake off all the vestiges of that. We have now 20 years of ongoing warfare of the warfare state it's continuing every moment uh the racism the sexism the misogyny the attack on the environment if you read a book like imperial san francisco that documents it will take away as it did for me any reader's romanticism about the history of california you know the the flag with the bear and what um 1849 or or whatever or you, you go up to nevada city oh it's also romanticized a book like Imperial San Francisco lays out the bounties that were being put on Native Americans, the terrible history on the land where we live. It's not to beat ourselves over the head. It's just to say that, as, as Faulkner said, the past isn't even past. And rather than that being something to immobilize us, I think it potentially uh, really enriches our lives. You know, if we can be present with it, and learn from it and grow from it. I have uh, three quotes at the start of the book, uh, Made Love Got War, and one is from Thich Nhat Hanh, and he talks about how in the past and the present, uh, he says it much better than I am off the cuff here, but we can rest with the past at the present time in a way that doesn't have to be disruptive of our capacity to be present in the world now. You know, a lot of people, uh, it's easy to feel that our own personal or historical past is wrecking our present, but it's really, I think of it as as compost for the soil, and, and it gives us possibilities to grow. 
Well, not to mention the fact that um, doesn't anybody want to know the truth? <laughs> that, yeah, really, <laughs> really, absolutely. That should, that should be the Sergeant Friday uh, view of history, just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> and then we, we would hope. Yeah, we'd yeah. learn what you know, really happened. Nothing wrong with that. I was enjoying your um, description of how the rights to your own book came back to you, and so you're now making it available for free. That That's very 60s, you know, steal this book. <laughs> it, it is very much, or, or steal a book that's free in this case. And I do want to encourage uh, listeners that hopefully you will go and take a look, and also share it with your, your uh, friends or people you know, whether it's social media or email. And again, it's easy. It's just made love got war. Dot org and I was really pleased and this was another um, I won't say cosmic I don't want to get uh, too sort of mystical about this but when I, I thought of the idea I contacted an outlet that had been publishing some of my articles for free in the past uh, called cold type it's based in Ontario Canada and coldtype.net is entirely free in publishing ebooks and so it was sort of a perfect match because it's not one of these things where, oh, they want to get any money out of it. And it's also something where they don't just sort of take something off a word program and put it on a web page. They're terrific designers. So it looks like, uh, in the best sense of the word, a very well laid out, well typeset book. Another uh, really nice thing about uh, your new ebook version of the classic part book. Um, Made Love Got War is the introduction by Daniel Ellsberg. That's quite eloquent. Yeah, so so moving to me. I uh, had talked to him back in 2006 when I was working on the book, and I said, if you would find any time to write a brief introduction, I, it would just be so wonderful. I'd, I'd so appreciate it, and uh, readers I know would be fascinated. And he said, well, Actually, I've been writing an essay, and I haven't known what to do with it, so here it is. And he very generously gave it to me, and it's, I find it really mind-blowing. As a matter of fact, in the author's note, I say something like, if you don't have time to read the whole book, really read the foreword by Daniel Ellsberg, because he connects the personal and the political, and he shares in his own life and about his own life in a way that connects to what we're all facing. And I think maybe especially as we get older, there's a big push. I know a lot of people who are writing about their own lives, and whether it's published or not, it could be tremendously valuable. I think it's part of as we get into our 50s, 60s, 70s, and above, there's a lot to reflect upon. And there are ways that we do, whether we call it a life review or anything else, and it's really valuable. And I, I think it's partly a way to substitute the sort of ersatz, phony, greeting card world that really dominates a lot of mass media with actual experience, which is not so easy, not so pretty, not so uh, seamless. And um, I remember reading a book by and then hearing a talk on the radio by Bell Hooks, who we recently lost, and she uh, mentioned that as she wrote in her books, including more of her personal experiences, she found that people who were reading her writing were finding her more accessible because it's not simply a sort of a detached uh, narrative or 
analysis or essay. It's it's sharing in terms of experience. And, you know, I could have an express an opinion and you could have or express an opinion and people can, if they choose, they can argue with it, but nobody can argue with your experience. Uh huh. Pretty slick. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's interesting. The what Dan Ellsberg wrote was really how he discovered all of these things that were just so um, insane that were going on around him. One by one, they're revealed to him. You know, and that's your book is a little like that too. You know that you're you're finding out all these things. You start out as a kid in the Cold War when you when you gain consciousness of the world around you that's what you see the, the russians have just launched sputnik and everybody's in a total uproar over this right yes it's um where i think various people in our lives we we learn different ways you know some people really learn by structured going to to school and to college or whatever other people might learn in other ways my own experience, just maybe it's my own particular psychological uh, makeup, uh, what gets called personality, that I've never found the shortest distance between two points to be a straight line. You know, I sort of go from one thing to another and learn. And I think one way or another, no matter how we learn formally or not, we're always resynthesizing our own experiences, and arguably there's a very strong political component here. It's sort of like the mass media tacitly are often telling us, who are you going to believe, us or your own eyes? You know, year after year we might hear the economy's doing really well. Well, and then we look at what's happening in our own communities, and it's like, what? There's a disconnect, and we're told all sorts of things about how our country is so great, um, and it's not to say there aren't some wonderful aspects of the United States. Certainly there are. But when we get this messaging that things are basically okay, uh, and then we have a very different firsthand understanding, then what do we go with? And I think classically, if our own experiences are, are dis, our own experiences are discounted, that's very useful for sort of authoritarian governance and so forth. So it does keep coming back to who, you know, who, are we going to allow ourselves to be gaslighted by a political economy, authorities, government, corporate-owned and advertised mass media that tell us X, Y, Z? Well, uh, if corporate capitalism is so great, how come we have enormous poverty in this country? How, how come when there's health care, uh, so many people are not getting the healthcare they need in the richest country in the world. So, you know, the narrative is corporate capitalism is great. The experience is that it's a doggy dog voracious attack on humanity. Let me take a moment to uh, uh, comment that a, a caller was trying to get in just a minute ago. And if you want to give a try in again, uh, we'll pick up 8952448 if anybody'd like to get in a question or comment on the program. We're uh, speaking with Norman Solomon about his new updated version of Made War, I'm sorry, <laughs> Made Love Got War, <laughs> and which is now available as an ebook at that address.org. And again, 8952448 if you want to get in a question or comment. So, 
interesting this believing your own eye stuff i i see you pick out all the stuff about the, how right wingers view science uh they like the new weapons that science part is pretty cool but when it comes to uh uh, re revealing um, environmental harm, then all of a sudden uh, uh, science is very suspect. Yeah, very much. It's a, uh, I think there are a lot of paradoxes, and it's something that I was actually surprised when I was was working on this book that a lot of the theme, you know, beginning with uh, Sputnik is the use of technology. And, you know, if we have been around for many decades, we have seen it. Uh, whether it's personal computers and iPhones or whatever. So the technology is on the march. And yet, as Martin Luther King said, it's easy to have what he called guided missiles and misguided men. <laughs> uh, the theorist Herbert Marcuse talked about how technology is always ultimately in the hands of the powerful. And I think we're seeing that. A lot of the technology is driven by the military-industrial complex. Uh, Silicon Valley is no friend to the planet. There are enormous uh, multi-billion-dollar contracts uh, flowing uh, monthly between uh, Silicon Valley uh, and the Pentagon, the CIA, other intelligence agencies, and not only, but not literally Silicon Valley, but Amazon Web Services has gone into the uh, many billions of dollars of contracts uh, with the NSA and so forth. So these voracious, greedy individuals like Jeff Bezos and the corporations that they have gotten rich with, they have no limit. It is absolute greed. And, you know, as it's said, you know, uh, capitalism is the ideology of the cancer cell. And it's just to keep growing and growing. And as, as, uh, as this, this book, Made Love Got War, gets into in, I think, some detail and depth, the ultimate is nuclear weapons. It is the ultimate um, destructive cash cow. Yeah. We're getting close to the end here, and I do want to get in uh, something about um, how people should, you know, maintain their optimism uh, with all this going on. But I think I have time to ask you about Portland. You were a young progressive in Portland in the 70s, and that's when the police were arresting anti-nuke protesters. And I'm just curious of what you think about Portland, Oregon today, uh, where the it's all boarded up against assaults by white supremacist groups, and apparently the police are implicated in helping the white supremacists. Yeah, I, I understand that Portland is going through a really rough time. When I was there initially in the 70s, it was considered or called the biggest small town in America. It grew into a progressive, uh, from a uh, conservative to a progressive city in the 80s and 90s. But you know, for a combination of factors, as you, you mentioned, including poverty and great homelessness, there's both a uh, right-wing element and a strong progressive element, and then who knows who they are, but some, some people who think political action or their own gratification is to go smash windows, which is a you know, really uh, bad combination, I think, of, of attitudes to, to think that violence is going to solve anything that way. Overall, I mean, here we are. Often there are good reasons to think we're living in perhaps a Weimar Republic kind of moment. Whatever criticisms I have, and I have huge criticisms against the Democratic Party, the fact is the Republican Party is neo-fascist. I get into this in the book. And so, therefore, we have to have a united front to defeat the Republicans. Otherwise, we will be uh, facing 
a much worse society than we already have. And to sort of, Annie, respond to this question about hope, I often think of what Antonio Gramsci said as he was in prison, he wrote, when Mussolini was in power in Italy, and he talked about the need for what he called pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Yeah, there you go. That's a, a very good way to put it. You know, the coming months are sure to tell us a lot about the, um, you know, the degree to which the Republican Party has become neo-fascist, and in the next year will be will, will be very telling. Uh, Absolutely, and, yeah. yeah. They're they're on the march. There's no doubt, and, and electorally, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. We have a call coming in. Let's try and take it, but it'll have to be a quick call, though. Just have a minute. Hang on a second here. Hello, call. You're live on the air. What's uh, your name and where are you calling from? Caller, are you there? Okay, they're not there. Sorry about that. All I heard was well, the... Well, this gives me a chance to say, you know, that uh, all the social change, whether it's um, environmental or uh, social justice, many other categories, it happens because people at the grassroots are making change. And I, I'm not wearing a hat, but I would tip my hat to Annie and Steve because you in Mendocino County are among the great activists who are in it for the long haul. And I think that's how change happens. Oh, my goodness. I didn't expect that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I would say there's a lot of people in a lot of groups here in in this place. I I used to do the community news, and people would say, well, what goes on up there? The cow wandered off or something? (laughs) But actually, there are a lot of people working hard around here, and uh, we appreciate you stopping in to talk with us tonight about it all. Okay, should we try? Oh, it's a here? pleasure. Thank okay, you. We'll give him a second we'll try, chance. We'll try here. a quick call here. Caller, you're on the air. I'm on the air. Got to be a quick one though. Spit it out. Okay. Uh, what? What? Uh, uh, how does your guest uh, uh, think about the the um, paradigm shift or and the deflection point? Okay. Paradigm shift and deflection point. Okay. Well, there's a lot of paradigm shifts for good and ill, Uh, you know, and so we we have, uh, I think, less than a minute, but I just say that uh, that's up to us to determine. I mean, I think we're at turning points that are very positive and very negative, and what we all do together will help shape the direction of the future. Okay, and so we need to uh, not deny what's going on, which includes a possible return of a Trump presidency, um, all kinds right. of possibilities, but we're, well, we cannot flinch before that. You're indeed. saying that um, if we acknowledge our past, we can um, be strong for the future. I think that's right. Okay, and to listeners again, madelovegotwar.org, where to get a copy of this. And Norman, thank you for being our guest. We appreciate it. And I can imagine us wanting to have you on six, nine months down the road as the primaries are approaching. Or as the midterms, Sounds I should good. Say. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for being our guest. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.